You may be seated. Well, here, uh, the reading of the word from Romans 12, 9 through 12. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we all come here today. We've gathered in your church. We come from various places in life. Some of those places are seasons where there is much hope and rejoicing, and there's other people in this room who come from places where there is much sadness, as they are gripped by fear and anxiety. But regardless of where we all come from, Lord, I pray now that you will soften every heart in this room and that they will be able to hear how this message can give them hope and something that they can rejoice in. For it is in Christ's name that we pray, amen. Well, Cornerstone is continuing their sermon series this Sunday as we explore the various ways of what living life in the family of God is like. And today we are going to look at verse 12. And to orient us, I want to give you a mental picture for its proper framework that is verses 9 through 13 to make this text a bit more concrete in your mind. The reason for doing so is because verses 9 through 13 starts somewhat of a new section as Paul's train of thought transitions from verse 8, the tail end of the spiritual gift section, to verse 9, which focuses not on spiritual gifts, but on the way in which we should live out our life as family members of God. So the way in which to make Romans 12, 9 through 13, a bit more concrete in your mind is to think of this section as a photo of God's family. And the single phrase, which acts as the grammatical nail from which this photo hangs on, is found back in Romans 12, 5, which reads, So we, though many, are one body in Christ. Now, one can be sure that this is the phrase which holds up God's family photo, for in the Greek, there is the, this is the lone verb that runs all the way through and up to this section. Now, the reason, um, the, yeah, the reason for why you can think of verses 9 through 13 as a divine family photo is because the instructions are exclusive to interactions between fellow church members. In other words, verses 9 through 13 stress how we should be treating fellow Christians as family members of God, for we are all brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, before dividing, uh, diving into our text, 
though, there is one thing that needs to be made clear about how to think about this passage. Now, as Westerners, what tends to define us is our intellect. For at the end of the day, it is assumed that this is the sole influence on our personality. But as Christians, though, we instinctively know that our hearts also play a factor into who we are, something Paul incorporates into many of his letters. Interestingly enough, some scientists have even begun to call this our second brain, or what Paul refers to as our affections. The problem with thinking that all we are is a head without a heart or can otherwise be described as simple walking, talking, brains on a stick, then we can over-rationalize Scripture and end up missing key things that we don't take into account with the heart component. For example, a brain on a stick interpretation of verses 9 through 13 simply sees a running list of virtues. But such an outlook misses what this passage is really communicating by way of showing how crucial the heart component is to these verses. Now, Paul makes clear in Colossians 3.14 that what binds all the ways in which Christians are to treat one another is the principle of love. In other words, these verses aren't just compartmentalized virtues, but a way of living life in God's kingdom. So today, we are going to dig deep with both our heads and our hearts to see how these three virtues are relevant to us and how we treat one another as family members of God. And the way in which we are going to unpack all this is through the following three headings, each containing a head and heart component. And so moving into our first virtue, We look specifically at how Christians ought to rejoice as family members in God's house. As for the head component, Paul notes that what compels Christians to rejoice is hope. But how often, as Christians, do we hear that word being thrown around? At the end of the day, what exactly is our hope? Or a more precise and penetrating question to ask is, What is the substance of this hope that we are to rejoice in? Well, Romans 8.25 indicates that hope's substance is found in the future, where God's kingdom awaits us. Therefore, the hope that we all have in this moment can be described as a yearning for the time when the final gathering of all of God's family is upon the mountain of the Lord a place where we will then be able to fully experience what we only partially experience in now, to gaze up into the heavens and while basking in the shining glory of the Lord, worship him as we cry, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the Alpha and Omega, the Lord God who was, who is, and always will be forever and ever. But this is more of the rational aspect of the way in which our hope leads us to rejoicing. To better appreciate the way in which this hope compels us to rejoice, it's crucial to also look at the heart component. 
And the way in which to do that is by going to the very source of where our hope originates, God's special love for us, otherwise referred to as election. Now, some struggle with this heart component, for the idea of God electing some and not others seems cold-hearted, making him out to be a righteous judge who is far more focused on justice and knows very little of the concept of mercy. And it's precisely these things that the Arminians wrestle with, for they struggle seeing how God, sending his son to only die for the sins of the elect and not all of mankind, could emphasize God's love, let alone be a proper motivation for us to rejoice. And so in 1618, with a desire to emphasize God's love all the more, they sought to put conditions on election by way of generalizing God's mercy unto all of humanity, thus leading them to conclude that Christ died for all mankind, resulting in man simply willing himself to accept the gift. Ironically, though, they did the very thing they sought so hard to avoid. They de-emphasized the unique and special love of God by generalizing it. Now, to prove how this de-emphasizes God's love, I have a question for all the husbands in the room. Guys, how do you think it would go over with your wife if you were to look at her and with heartfelt sincerity say, honey, I want you to know that I love you no more and no less than all other women in the whole wide world. Would that make her feel special? Would that make her feel unique? Would that make her feel like you chose her to be your bride? Of course not. And Ephesians 5, 25 through 27 makes perfectly clear that God's special love is no different. For God has chosen you and I to be a part of his unique family different and apart from the rest of the world. And the very evidence of this, that God loves you, has chosen you from before the foundation of the world itself, is demonstrated in the way through which God's divine love works itself out, through the Holy Spirit and your interactions with others. Now, to drive home the point of God's electing love for us, Paul, in 2 Corinthians 2.14, paints a beautiful picture of God's love for his elect by way of alluding to the grandest festival held in all of Rome, a Greco-Roman military procession. Now, if one were to be held, it meant that a decisive battle had taken place that meant many rigorous requirements that earned the display of such a memorable festival, the chief one being a victorious battle which ended a war. When such a ceremony occurred, fragrances and burning spices were tossed everywhere into the city to fill the air with perfume. The Roman streets, where the procession took place, was showered with petals. Leading the procession was the military general, adorned with a robe embroidered with gold, who accomplished the victory. And lastly, following him, the finest captured treasures on public display for all to see. 
Now, with this in mind, the heart component for how we ought to rejoice and hope can be summed up by, through Paul's word picture of Christ leading you and I as the captured treasures from a victory in a decisive spiritual battle against the serpent. A victory carried out by way of crushing his head through his death and resurrection. For the following translation of 2 Corinthians 2.14 captures well God's special love for us. Thanks be to God who continually leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession. This, brothers and sisters, is the extent of God's special and unique love for us. For we have been captured to be his forever and ever. And with this hope in mind, I simply ask how one could not rejoice. But just because we have much to rejoice in, though, Paul acknowledges that we are still in a fallen world. For Satan is still out there, prowling like a roaring lion. And nothing else gives him more delight than to prey upon those whom Christ has safely captured as his. Indeed, Christ's word of admonishment to Simon in Luke twenty-two thirty-one provides us with a terrifyingly vivid word picture of Satan's desire to sift those who know the Lord like wheat. The result carried out by the action of sifting wheat ultimately leads to cracking open the outer shell of the seed in order to eat the interior. Now, with this in mind, Christ makes perfectly clear that Satan's desire is to crack open our body and feast on our souls for eternity, if only God would allow him. As Christians, we need to be aware of this so that we may be spiritually prepared for times of tribulation, lest we flee in those moments. And this brings us to our second point for how we need to stand our ground. Now, with the head component in mind in English, Paul's instruction for how we ought to respond to times of personal suffering is woodenly translated as being patient in our tribulation. But this only scratches the surface of what Paul is saying here. For the Greek word represented by be patient carries much more meaning. For example, in Greco-Roman plays, the word was often used to express the idea of remaining rather than fleeing when one encounters opposition. So, rather than think of this as an instruction from Paul to simply remain patient in your suffering, phrases such as stand one's ground, hold out, or endure through the tribulations better express the word in English. And just as our hope is of vital importance to ensure that we rejoice, so also it is paramount for us to ensure that we endure through tribulations. The reason being is Paul describes the hope given to you and I as categorically different from a shameful hope in Romans 5.5. In other words, the Christian hope is one that we can hold fast to when weathering the storm of hardship. 
for it will not disappoint us, leaving us hopeless. Now, another term for what Paul calls a shameful hope in Romans 5.5 was simply referred to as the walking dead by those who were fortunate enough to have survived the horrors of the concentration camp of World War II. Through their personal testimonies, the first indication that one of their fellow prisoners had lost hope could be seen in both their eyes and the way in which they carried themselves. Hence the term. And eventually, the person would either cease eating and drinking water altogether, or they would come down with a terminal infection. Now, one would think that it is apparent to everyone that to endure through suffering, we need to have a hope that does not disappoint. But this could be further from the truth in our own culture. For it tends to see us as mere brains on a stick, by way of focusing solely on striving to promote positive mental health. But think with me. If hope is so vital to the one who suffers, then how come it is never brought up or mentioned in government mental health clinics or public hospitals? As someone who has been clinically diagnosed with PTSD, I can attest that these tools can most certainly be beneficial. Nevertheless, the knee-jerk reaction from our society to recommend a therapist or the latest antidepressant to someone who enters into the valley of despair is, at the very least, a bit concerning. And at the end of the day, ask any doctor if hope is helpful to a suffering person. And although they will readily admit that hope is indeed essential for positive mental health, They know that it is something that cannot medicinally be prescribed to you or I. Now, I highlight this to show you that the heart component is missing. One that God's elect have. For Romans 5.5 makes clear that the source of our hope that we have been given is the love of God poured out to us through the power of the Holy Spirit. Indeed, The love of God are the grounds for Paul to describe the hope that we have as one that is not a shameful hope that ends up disappointing us. Now, an example of how the hope of a Christian acts as the very bedrock through times in which we endure hardship can be displayed by our knowledge of Scripture. Take, for instance, the words of Revelation 21.4. For the Christian who is trying to weather the storms of tribulation, how different do the following words sound to their ears? He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. And neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Do not these words carry infinitely more meaning for the personal hope of a Christian who is in the valley of despair? But we have yet to discuss the best aid we have as Christians. And so, with Paul's instruction to rejoice in hope residing in one hand and his exhortation for us to stand our ground in times of tribulation in the other, I want to explore that which ensures to carry us through our times of suffering. 
so that when connected to the church, we remain a shining beacon of hope in the midst of a dark world. For among the many weapons that God's family has been given, prayer is most certainly the weapon of choice to pull from the arsenal that is given to Christians indeed. Now, opening with the head component, the Puritans are well known for their deep love of prayer, so much that they not only practiced it religiously, but wrote winsomely on the subject. George Herbert, for example, describes prayer as reversed thunder, Christ's side-piercing spear, and as God's breath in man returning to his birth. Martin Luther, in expressing his desire for a longer attention span to devote more time to prayer, once said, Oh, if only I could pray the way this dog watches the meat. All his thoughts are concentrated on the piece of meat. Otherwise, he has no thought, wish, or hope. Now, as for how prayer is an essential tool in the midst of tribulation, it can be observed that through the way in which it teaches us to depend on the Lord. For although we do not know what life has in store for us, isn't it true that all that matters is the fact that the Lord, our Father, knows the full path of life that his children are going to walk down? And the more active our prayer life, the better equipped we are to walk down that path by faith. But our prayers require both our head and our hearts. For indeed, the old saying, talk is cheap, rings true, in that if we have a head and heart disconnect in our prayer life, all we are really doing is flapping our lips. And so, by way of moving into the final aspect of this section on prayer, I ask you, what are the desires of your heart? For those desires often can be determinative in how we pray. Now, when attempting to persevere through hardships, often our world becomes clouded by that one thing that causes us so much anxiety and fear or grief. If we are not careful, we can end up deceiving ourselves and to thinking that if that one problem in our lives was fixed, then everything would be okay. But the words of the prophet Jeremiah ring true when he said, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. For how easy is it in the midst of tribulation for us to replace our hope in Christ and God's future kingdom with our own version of what that life looks like, a hope that ultimately leaves us hopeless. For that, to use more Pauline language, is a shameful hope. And ultimately, this is why we need to heed Paul's instructions in being constant in prayer, for there is no other tool like it. Specifically, it is in our confessional prayer life, whether it's in worship, when we prayerfully confess the truths that recapture our hearts, or it is in times of confession, 
where we acknowledge those idolatrous things that have gained the affections of our hearts, causing us to cast our own vision of what God's kingdom looks like. Either way, confessional worship ensures the reorientation of our hearts by dialing it back in to what they were initially designed to yearn and crave for. God's kingdom to come for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we confess that so often our anxieties and and fears, when they grip us, it seems like our life would only be fixed if that one thing um, became true, if that one thing was fixed. But Lord, let us not have that dominate our minds. Let us remember to rejoice in the true hope that we have, which is in your Son, Jesus Christ. And may we all continue to glorify you in all that we do. And in Christ's name we pray, amen. Will I ask that you please rise?